In an old Cherokee myth, a boy walks off to a valley where he fasts. On the third day of his fast, he decides to climb the mountain. At the top, he's taken by the beauty of the view. As he gazes out upon the valley from which he's just come, he hears a rattling behind him. Then, the voice of a rattlesnake. I am dying for lack of food and warmth. Please, boy, warm me under your shirt and take me back to my home in the valley. Do you think I'm an idiot? I know you. If I pick you up, you'll bite me. My blood will boil under my skin, and soon I'll die. I won't. If you help me, I won't hurt you. The boy thinks for some time. The snake is indeed quite beautiful and seems to be in so much distress. But finally, he takes the snake under his shirt and carries him down to the valley, setting him down gently in the grass. Quite pleased with himself for his act of kindness, the boy stands up, and right then, the rattlesnake lunges and bites him on the leg. Angrily, the boy yells at the snake for breaking his promise, and the rattlesnake waits patiently until the boy finishes. And then he speaks. You knew what I was. Danger like mine is obvious, made clear by my very nature. You did not have to help me, though I thank you for doing so. But I cannot change what I am, and you knew what I was when you picked me up. Welcome to Beastiary. I'm Eric Botts. And I'm Meg Sipis. Today on the show, Rilla Askew joins us with her own cautionary tale about rattlesnakes. Tin House first published her essay, Rumba, in 2013. This version comes from Rilla's 2017 collection, Most American Notes from a Wounded Place. We found a baby rattlesnake in the house when we got here last fall. Not dead yet, but dying. Stretched, S-like, on the large glue board I'd set out to catch the scorpions and daddy long legs that hold barn dances in our empty house while we're gone. This is my fancy about what the critters do in our absence. Dozens of pale tan creatures, barbed tails arced high, sashay their long-legged partners across the living room floor, or lasso and ride the skittery six-inch black centipedes that sometimes scurry along our baseboards, flaunting their wicked orange feelers. We find their desiccated corpses under chairs, beneath windows, laid out in the empty laundry basket when we return in the fall. What has exhausted them so? A barn dance? A play party? A Wild West rodeo? More likely, it's the poison I spray in the crevices before we close up the house to head north for the summers. But I enjoy the barn dance fancy. Our rattlesnake problem isn't fancy, though. It's a fact. Watch out for the snakes, my husband and I tell each other when we go outside to walk or work. Our rock house sits on a rocky bluff in the Samboy Mountains of southeastern Oklahoma. Somewhere north on the ridge behind us is a winter den. Mr. LaBeef! If you've seen the rattlesnake scene in True Grit, 
You've got the picture. This land where we live is the same country. The Samboy and the Winding Stair are twin ranges, rugged, low, humpback mountains slashing east to west above the plains. They're thick with hickory, oak, southern pine. They hold the same jagged sandstone bluffs and limestone caverns. When the days shorten, the rattlers come passing through on their way to that hidden crevice, where, until spring, they'll sleep entwined in great complicated knots, moil all over each other, crawl outside to sun themselves on warm days. A group of rattlers gathered together like this is called a rumba. A rumba of rattlesnakes. One strangely warm November day in 2011, my husband and I watched a five-foot diamondback crawl out from beneath the ramp to our shed. The snake was beautiful, ruddier than most, and as thick around as my forearm. Its rattles lifted high as it moved in no particular hurry, but with clear purpose, down into a rocky drainage ditch up again on the far side, continuing across the ridge in obedience to that den's siren song. I come from a people who will not allow any poisonous snake to live. My husband is a city guy from Boston with no family tradition of snake killing. Whether either of us could have brought ourselves to shoot that diamond back is a moot point, We didn't have a gun. My dad had been mentioning this lack ever since we bought the place years ago. He took one look at the rocky ridge behind the house, the huge sandstone slabs that lie tumbled about the property like a giant's toy blocks, a thousand places for a rattler to love, and he shook his head. Y'all might want to think about getting yourselves a gun. Okay, we'd think about it, we said. And we did think about it, talked about it too. I leaned toward the notion of getting a gun. My husband did not. We have a mixed marriage, you might say. He's East Coast urban culture, where mainly just cops and criminals have guns. I'm rural Oklahoma culture, where pretty much everybody has one. Or several. My dad is a hunter. When I was a kid growing up, the full six-tiered gun rack on our den wall was as unremarkable to me as the swan-shaped lamp on top of the TV. That first year we stayed here, I called Daddy and asked him to drive the 30 miles from his house to come kill the black snake in our wood box. Black snakes aren't poisonous, I knew that, but this one was huge, and the wood box is inside the house right next to the wood stove. When I opened it and saw those dusky, looped-around lengths of muscular, motionless body curled around stumps of last winter's wood, I dropped that oak lid with a thud and headed for the phone. We can't be taking, we can't a, be chance taking a chance on it getting out into the house, I said by way of explanation to my Yankee husband as I punched in Dad's number. 
He brought his magnum pistol and a five-pronged frog gig and ended up using the gig and a shovel. No sense firing a gun if you don't have to. He chased the snake outside into the yard, then pinned it to the ground with the sharp prongs while he got in a few good whacks with the shovel. Well, if you're not going well, to get you a gun, Daddy said, at least get you a good frog gig. Which we did, not long after. We still have it, 15 years later, stored in the garden shed where that five-foot rattler crawled out from beneath the ramp. We've never used it to kill a snake. My sister Ruth and her husband own both frog gig and guns. They have a rifle, a shotgun, and a handgun Daddy gave them to shoot snakes with. They raise cattle across the pasture from Mom and Dad's house on our family's hard scrabble land east of Red Oak, where livestock deaths from coyotes and bobcats are common. Raccoons attack their laying hens at night, a ruthless, bloody slaughter, and only the hens' heads are eaten. Copperheads hide in the weeds beneath the water trough. In the creek behind the pasture, thick brown water moccasins swim along the top of the water. There are reasons why people here kill poisonous snakes. That baby rattler we found inside our house was a diamondback, its markings as clearly etched as the top of a matchbox. It could have been the offspring of the rust-colored one Paul and I watched crawl out from beneath our shed ramp that year before. If the glue board hadn't caught it, one of us could have stepped on it in the dark. We always put on slippers when we get up in the night because of the scorpions, but soft slippers are no protection from snake fangs. Baby rattlers are born dangerous. They'll rear back, whip around, strike repeatedly if they feel threatened. Unlike a grown rattler, a young one has no ability to limit the amount of venom it injects. When I went to discard the glue board, the baby rattler moved. I jumped back about 10 feet. The poor thing was nearly flat from starvation. It had probably been caught there for weeks. But the moment I came near, it began slowly, painfully writhing. I grabbed some long cooking tongs to carry the glue board outside, laid it on the stony ground and ran over it with the car. You can't get sentimental about baby rattlesnakes. Any rattlesnake, really. I wrote a story once about a fellow who liked to drink in bars in southeastern Oklahoma with a young rattlesnake coiled up under his hat. He'd sweep off his hat to reveal the baby rattler just to shock and impress the ladies. That fiction was based on a true story my dad told about a cowboy snake wrangler from Hevener who did such things and died from it. When I was researching the story, I learned a few facts. Rattlesnakes can strike two-thirds their own length and get back to coil so fast the human eye can hardly see it. They have medium to poor eyesight, a perfected sense of smell through that constantly flickering tongue, and excellent motion detectors via bones in their jaws that can feel the tiniest mammal footfall. They have acute heat sensors in the pits 
between eye and nostril. That's what gives them the name pit viper. When a rattler strikes, its fangs pierce the flesh, instantaneously injecting venom as if through a hypodermic needle. In humans, a rattlesnake bite is horrifically painful. Symptoms include swelling, hemorrhage, lowered blood pressure, difficulty breathing, increased heart rate, fever, sweating, weakness, giddiness, nausea, vomiting, intense burning pain. If left untreated, death can come within hours. Most species of rattlesnake, the velvet tail, the ground rattler, even the eastern diamondback, when disturbed, will try to withdraw. Not the western diamondback. It will stand its ground. It may even advance to get within better striking distance. Western diamondbacks account for the majority of snake bite deaths in the United States. They account for most of the rattlesnakes we see on our mountain. We'll be right back after this quick message. Two weeks after the shed ramp rattler, Thanksgiving Day, 2011. Another weirdly warm afternoon in November. The Samboy bluffs bathed in southern winds and amber sunshine, and everybody gathered at our house for dinner. In the after-meal lull, with the older folks all sitting around the front room dozing or talking, my four nieces and their little dog set out for a walk to the East Pond. 19-year-old Faith comes in the door after a bit, hunting her camera. There's a snake snake coiled coiled in the yard, yard, she says, her voice remarkably calm. Little eight-year-old Cece marches to the living room, stands in front of my snake-phobic mom, and announces, There's a big snake in the yard, There's a big snake in the yard, Grandma. We think it's a rattling one. It's a rattling one. Daddy is up from his easy chair and out the door like a shot. I hurry around trying to locate my phone to take pictures while the rest of the family troops out to see it, except for my mother, of course, who wouldn't go out there on a dare. By the time I reach the porch, the rattler has uncoiled and begun crawling away from the house toward a flat nest of sandstone slabs and boulders beside the pond path. I catch a glimpse of it gliding rapidly through the dead grass, its diamond markings mottled but distinct size is almost beyond belief. Even winding S-like like that, the rattler is longer and thicker than any I've ever seen. What's even more unbelievable is the sight of my 86-year-old father following fast behind it with our frog gig, the one my husband has just helpfully fetched from the garden shed. I can see my dad's back, his bony shoulders hunched as he trails the snake quickly across the yard. And then daddy's right arm arcs high, the gig handle gripped in his fist like a harpoon as he makes a great downward jab and everybody gasps or shouts, Be careful, careful, daddy, watch out! Those small, sharp metal prongs, designed to pierce the frog's vulnerable back, just bounce off the rattler. No way can they pierce that tough snake skin. 
Before Daddy can try again, the rattler disappears into a hollowed-out crevice beneath a giant boulder. In the pause that follows, we hear the rattles in the dark under the rock. Still sizzling. Daddy frowns, bending over to peer inside the crevice. Young Faith, in denim skirt and soft mucklucks, circles the rock with her camera. She's a city girl, an aspiring photographer, smart and fearless, at least where animals are concerned. She has no idea of the danger. Faith, I call out. Keep your distance, hon. She retreats a little ways, camera still clicking. Her mom, my sister Rita, who lives in Tulsa now, far removed from this wild-hearted country, says, Ah, just leave it alone. It'll go on, won't it? Not necessarily, our sister Ruth says. Very matter-of-fact. She knows. Stirred up and frightened as it is, that rattler might stay under the rock for hours. Days, even. When would we ever know for sure it was gone? This is rural, mountainous, deep in the Bojacks, Oklahoma. You're not going to just call up the friendly folks at Animal Planet and have them come remove the diamondback from your property. The fact is, we have to kill it. Trouble is, nobody's got a gun. Paul and I still don't have one. Ruth and Les didn't bring one. Rita and John only get garter snakes in Tulsa. They're not gun people. Our daddy owns three shotguns, a rifle, a muzzle loader for black powder season, the Magnum pistol he wears in a holster for shooting cotton mouths from his four-wheeler when he's crossing the creek. But for my father, and for most of the men I know around here, a gun is a tool. It serves a specific purpose. To get food for your family, to protect your livestock from coyotes and rattlers. If there's no purpose for the gun, it stays put in the gun rack or behind the basement door. Daddy would never dream of going to the woods without a gun, but he'd also never think to bring one to Thanksgiving dinner. So, no gun, kids and dog in the yard, one useless and ineffective frog gig, a riled and lethal and very huge western diamondback holed up under a rock a few dozen yards from the front door? What would you do? This being rural southeastern Oklahoma, what we do is we call a neighbor. Daddy comes toward me now, the gig laid back across his shoulder. You reckon Richard, you reckon and, Richard and them are down at Dixie's, he says. Sure, sure I say. Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. Call, call down and see if you can borrow a gun. I quit taking pictures with my phone long enough to use it to call down the mountain to our near neighbor, Dixie, to ask if we can borrow her son-in-law Richard's gun. Preferably a shotgun, I tell her, echoing my daddy's instruction in one ear. Paul will drive down and get it, I say, echoing my husband's words in the other. Or a 22, a pistol, I say, listening to my dad again. Just anything. We got a rattlesnake in the yard. Dixie relays the message to Richard. She comes back on the phone. No problem, she says, but y'all don't need to drive down here. Richard says he'll bring a shotgun up there. (laughs) 
Within minutes, his tan work truck comes bouncing up the mountain on our pitted gravel road, and I can see a couple of passengers in the cab with him. Well, of course. A rattler in the yard is big news. Richard climbs out of the cab, reaches in and pulls his 12-gauge from the gun rack, heads toward us, trailed by a dark-haired young man and an eight-year-old boy, his stepson-in-law and grandson. Because that's how it is here. The necessity and excitement of snake killing gets handed down man to boy. Richard steps onto the large sandstone slab in front of the crevice, and my sister and I corral the kids out of the way, positioning ourselves to try to see the snake at the moment of killing. Which we can't, of course. The space underneath the boulder is too low. Cavernous. Shadowy almost to black. Once he has the snake located, Richard doesn't even slow to take aim, but just hoists the shotgun to his shoulder and fires in one smooth motion. A great blast, followed by a furious, tortured hissing as the snake thrashes in the dark, dying. And we all creep forward to see. The high, sizzling buzz so heart-stopping and terrifying when it comes from a roused rattler ready to strike, seems sad now, feeble, vibrating more and more weakly beneath the ledge. My young nieces utter soft sounds of dismay. The men stand back a smart distance from the black crevice, unperturbed. They know how dangerous a dying rattler can be. When the buzz has slowed to almost nothing, Richard uses the frog gig to drag the body out, jabbing it behind the head and hoisting it up lengthwise for all to see. A murmur of amazement ripples through us. The rattles are silent now, the thrashing stilled to an occasional small tremor, slow, useless lifting of its tail. Richard lays the snake out on the sandstone slab. We gather in a circle, marveling at its size, how clean the shot is, a neat, bloody wound across the back of the head, keen enough to kill it, but not destroy the carcass. The men's voices are calm, their excitement expressed now in dry, understated, oaky drawl. Big snake. Uh Uh-huh. Right at six foot, I'd reckon. Can't we just kill it? Faith keeps saying. Put it out of its its misery. misery. There's There's a shovel shovel right there. there. She's a tender-hearted girl, devoted to all living creatures, especially cats and guinea pigs. She feels the snake's suffering. The men eye the stretched-out body. Ah, it's dead, dead. Richard says. A snake will keep moving long after its head has been blown off. We all know that. But this one's head is intact, and there's something mighty alive looking in its eyes. And the fact is, even a dead rattler can strike. We've all heard stories of severed snakes' heads striking and injecting venom because the nerves in the jaw are still alive. So we keep our distance, gradually moving in closer as we've become sure the snake is not a threat. 
The dying takes a long time. Our conversation stalls on how long it's taking, how many rattles the snake's got, and how many have likely broken off over the years. One thing we don't talk about is who will keep that prized snakeskin. Richard shot the rattler. Even if it is on our property, the understanding is that the snake goes to him. I asked to keep the rattles, though, and that, too, seems fitting. Or in any case, no one questions why I might want those smelly old rattles. The men speculate about how long in feet and inches the snake will measure when its muscles finally relax. How thick through the middle it is. About as big around as a pop can, Richard says. Thick as my upper arm, I'm thinking. Thick as my upper arm. Thick as my upper arm. When the snake is doorstop dead, I stretch out on the sandstone beside it with my arm laid next to the thickest part to verify the comparison while my husband takes pictures. Faith, too, kneels beside the dead rattler, petting it slowly, the way you might stroke a favored pet. At first, I think she wants to know safely what a rattlesnake feels like under her hand. But then it occurs to me that what she's really doing is trying to soothe the already dead snake, to say in some way she's sorry. Maybe I think this because that's what I feel. On through the afternoon and into the evening, as Richard loads the dead snake into the back of his pickup to drive it down the mountain, and we all troop back inside the house for leftovers and a second helping of pumpkin pie, through the slow letdown after all the excitement, the goodbye hugs, the drawn-out end of the holiday family farewells, I feel a kind of increasingly sick-to-my-stomach regret. I hate that the snake had to die. But this is our home, our yard. Tough enough to step out the door on warm days, never knowing if that which can kill you lies in wait on the path to the pond. We couldn't simply walk away from a six-foot diamondback holed up beside that path. Richard told us that his father-in-law, Fred Ezekiel, who built our house, had to clean out a rattlesnake den from the rocky bluff behind the house when he laid the foundation. They're trying to repopulate, trying to repopulate maybe, maybe, Richard says. Trying to move back trying in. To move back in. <laughs> it's one thing to live on a rattlesnake superhighway, and quite a dangerous other thing to dwell in a house where rattlesnakes gather for their winter rumba among the very rocks and crevices beside you. The men never consider anything but that the snake had to be killed. Our mother wouldn't come outside to see it even after it was dead. Later, when we showed her the pictures, she shuddered and dreamed bad snake dreams for a week. The girls, our nieces, a young generation, a city generation, 
found the snake beautiful. They've never lived on this land. They've been watching PBS nature shows all their lives. Their sympathies were definitely with the snake. And their mom, too, my sister Rita. She had to go on into the house before the snake died because she didn't want to see it suffering. But my sister Ruth, who lives here, stayed right through to the end. She knows what my dad knows, what anyone born and bred to this rough landscape knows. You cannot allow that which can kill you to dwell in your living and walking and working space. This is a land without mercy. You might hesitate to kill a rattlesnake. You might hesitate to kill a rattlesnake, Ruth says. But that rattlesnake would not hesitate to kill you. I still have the dried rattles from that diamondback. Richard's stepson-in-law, Stephen, brought them back to me the next day after they'd skinned and laid out the snake. He told us it measured five feet, ten and a half inches, missing that six-foot guess by not much. Then Paul and I drove into McAllister to buy a gun. His views on gun ownership had shifted. Not out of fear for us, he said, but because of what could have happened to the children, the little eight-year-old Cece, her toddler twin brothers, our young lady nieces and their small yippy dog. We went to the pawn and ammo shop Richard recommended. The place was packed with men and boys in red hunting caps. It was still deer season, and a few grizzled old characters in full camouflage. We wandered the aisles, looking at rifles and shotguns hanging in rows with tags we couldn't read, except for the prizes. Hoping for advice, we waited at the counter, listening to the clerks and customers converse in a language we did not understand, the language of weaponry. After a while, my husband and I looked at each other, shrugged our shoulders, and left. The next Sunday, in Red Oak, I told Daddy we were looking to buy a gun, finally. But we didn't know how to do it. I'll come, I'll come with you, he we'll said. Go we'll go to Walmart. And he thought a minute. No, here, here. Tell, you what. tell you what. He went downstairs to the basement and came back carrying his dad's old 20-gauge shotgun and handed it to me. So that's part of my inheritance now. My papa's old rabbit gun. It's stored in the bedroom closet, unloaded, stocked down, the shells in a zippered pouch on the top shelf. Paul and I keep saying we're going to take it out and fire it one of these days so we'll know what to do with it when we have to use it. The dried rattles I keep on my bookshelf, along with a desiccated scorpion lying on top of a small Oklahoma-shaped piece of sandstone I found in the road. Not a trophy, but a talisman. A reminder. Watch out for the snakes, my husband and I tell each other on warm days. Inside the house, we watch where we step. We never put a hand or a foot where we can't see what we're getting ready to touch.
Rilla Askew was born in the Sandboy Mountains of Oklahoma. A writer of fiction and nonfiction whose stories are often set in the harsh landscape of that state, she doesn't think of herself as a, quote, regional writer. Rather, she says, America is her subject, Oklahoma the canvas. This essay comes from her 2017 collection, Most American, Notes from a Wounded Place. She's also the author of several novels, most recently, Kind of Kin. Special thanks to Ralph Bellavo at the Gaylord College of Journalism and Mass Communication at Oklahoma State University for recording Rilla for this episode. Seriously, Ralph, thank you so much. We had quite a frustrating time finding a place that would record her pro bono. You really saved the day for us. Bestiary is produced by me, Eric Botts, and her, Meg Sipas. Editing, sound design, and our theme music all come from me. Meg helps with research and writing, and she runs our social media. Aside from the theme song, you also heard music in this episode from U.S. Army Blues, Ralph Font and his rumba music, Kai Engel, Jazar, and the music you're hearing now... is by Kula. Subscribe to Be Starry on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever app you use to tap into the podcast ether. We're on Twitter and Facebook at BeastaryPod. If you go to our website, BeastaryPod.org, you'll find specialized artwork for each episode, as well as a link you can follow to support the show with monthly donations. We're a pretty small-time operation, funding the show out of our own pockets, so every dollar helps. If you can't donate, you might consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, or just sharing the show with someone who hasn't heard us before. Regardless, thanks for listening.